0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, John Paul II, and, and Therese of Lisieux, and I, I will do that and get us out of here before 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> no, we should be able to be on time. But uh, let me just finish a thought that I, I kind of ended with in our last reflection. I was talking about John of the Cross and this search for for Christ, which he calls prayer, and uh, and where it takes us, and we, we look at some of the obstacles to be overcome in prayer. Uh, in other words, during our time of prayer, we submit obstacles to God, whether, whether they're thugs uh, or our own, the boundaries of our own limitations or, uh, or, or kind of the wild beasts of the world, we submit those things to the Lord, but that's not the only thing that happens in prayer. The other thing that happens in prayer is God sends his messengers to us. And so our job in prayer is to welcome the messengers, the different kinds of messages God sends. And so there are three kinds of messengers and two kinds of messengers. So what are the messengers God sends? Well, the, uh, some of the messengers God sends us are, is, uh, are, are persons, whether angels or men, and then God even sends us messengers who aren't persons. The beauty of creation is a messenger from God, an angel from God, the very beauty of creation. So when you're, you're looking out at the mountains, I, I love to look at the mountains this time of year in the early mornings because the, um, the first rays of the sun's light hits, hits the mountains and like we've had these snowstorms that red light against the snow, and um, it's just so beautiful. And it doesn't, haven't you noticed it just makes you just want to surrender, go into silence, and rest with it? Well, that that's a messenger from God. He's inviting you to pray. And you know that's a pretty intense experience, right? Pretty intense. Some people find it so intense that they say that they don't go to church because they find God up in the mountains. Have you ever heard of anybody like that? Well, if you find somebody like that you love who, who says something like that, tell them it's not an either or, it's a both and. We do find God in the mountains, but we also find God in the second messenger, uh, our people, uh, whether angelic people or, or human people like us, and these, these persons, they preach the gospel to us. And so, so this gets to one of the things I wanted to stress uh, today was that we need doctrine because doctrine is a love letter from Jesus. The doctrine of the church, the sacred doctrine of the church, is a love letter to us. And, and the biggest problem we have is we don't always read it like a love letter. Uh, we look at, at, sometimes we look at the doctrines, we read the catechism, and we're reading the catechism so that we can tell the person who's wrong how wrong they are, because the catechism says. Well, we all do that a little bit, but that's not reading it like a love letter, is it? That's reading it like an arsenal of weapons. Read it like a love letter. Receive the teaching as a message from your beloved. If you're seeking him, you will find him. And he speaks to you through the preaching of the church. So, and, this, and it doesn't matter whether the homilist at your parish, the priest who's preaching, is a good preacher or not. Even bad preachers, the Holy Spirit uses them all the time. Take me, for example. <laughs> the, the Holy Spirit will speak through someone who, who uh, is very broken, and uh, not very confident. And the Holy Spirit will speak through somebody who is very eloquent and is able to master all kinds of vocabulary. The Holy Spirit doesn't care who, who He uses. He uses them all to get to you. You're the one He cares about. You're the one He cares about. So this is one of the reasons why we study the faith. Many of you uh, uh, purchased the book or already have copies of the book Hidden Mountain Secret Garden. These, this is a, a set of, uh, well not a, a really set of lectures, it's my lecture notes and my notes about discussions that I've had with seminarians over the years. And I try to make it so that it wasn't so dry, so I put some stories in there. But, uh, but the, the idea of reading through the sacred doctrine was, I thought, one of the most important things that people need for prayer today is they need to know the the truth about Jesus. That Jesus Everything Jesus did, he did. When he did it as man, he was doing it as God. And everything he did as God, he was doing as a man. So when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that was an act of God. That was God acting through him. He is God. But he acted through Jesus' humanity. How? Well, Lazarus didn't rise up until Jesus called out to him, Come forth. And his human voice, filled with divinity, was so powerful, Lazarus, though he was dead, heard the voice and rose. Uh, Everything uh, Jesus did as a man, he he also did as God. So, when Jesus was anxious in the Garden of Gethsemane, anxious about what was being asked of him from the Father, The sorrow, the anxiety, the worry, the fear. He feared so much, he sorrowed so much, he sweat blood. That prayer that he offered as a man, he offered as God. God understands the anxieties of our hearts. Do you see how powerful sacred doctrine is? All of a sudden, your your mind opens up to the wonder of our faith. Uh, All the false images and fantasies you had about Jesus that were too narrow, they get shattered when you start thinking about the truth of who he really is. The problem with heresy isn't that that heresy is so broad-minded. The problem with all kinds of different heresies and false teaching is that they're too narrow. Doctrine, the sacred doctrine of their church we argue about it because when the true doctrine keeps the mystery alive and when we see the mystery we are drawn to prayer so, so do you see when the angel when god sends angels and men to preach the gospel to you priests and religious uh, catechists when he sends these people to you to preach he's trying to open up your heart to the mystery of his love he's trying to overwhelm you with the truth So filled with wonder, your whole spirit wants to fall in adoration before the mystery of who he is. And this happens when people preach well. Because every time the gospel is preached, whether it is a humble second grade catechist preparing kids for First Communion, or it's Pope Francis in Rome in front of a million people, every time the gospel is preached, That is a moment of actual grace, a moment where we can encounter Jesus and he can change everything about us. Whereas John John the Cross says the wounds produced by nature and the beauty of nature produce a, a light wound, a kind of wound of love that goes away. When somebody speaks the truth of the gospel to us, it pierces our heart in a way that doesn't go away very easy. It's hard to go back to your old way of life when you realize how much God loves you right now, right here. When you hear the doctrine of the true church has a love letter from the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit to you, it changes everything. It doesn't go away easy. Your life is changed. The second the second um, uh, uh, kind of message that angels and people give you is an interesting one. This kind of message, uh, it's not so much in the first kind of message they gave, gave you when they preach the Gospel. When, when you understand what they're saying, what you understand wounds your heart. You want to live differently in light of the mystery that you receive. But sometimes, if you ever notice, that somebody is speaking and they said something so beautiful, so heartrending, that you're no longer listening to what they're saying. It's like you're carrying on a conversation with God quite apart from, from what they're saying. Have you ever noticed, had an experience like that? Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity did. Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity was, uh, when she was a teenager, she, all uh, the people who were her catechists and a lot of the priests who preached They preached um, about how unworthy we were because of sin, and they preached about the demands of God's justice and the fact that we need to do penance. Now, all of that is true. There's nothing wrong with any of it. We are, in fact, unworthy. We have sinned, and we do need to do penance. But the one thing they were lacking in their preaching and that Elizabeth puzzled Elizabeth was that they never talked about the love of God. If God was only the God of justice, if it was only a matter of justice, we'd be annihilated by now. There'd be be no reason for us to be here. There must be something else going on in the heart of God besides divine justice. And it's His love. When we open our hearts to His love, He raises us up into divine justice. His love informs our efforts to do penance. His love informs our efforts to deny ourselves and follow the gospel more fully. We don't do it to prove something to God. We don't do it to appease God because he's angry. We do it because Jesus died for us. He's loved us so much. He is loved crucified, given to us by the Father. And we have communion with him every time we go to communion at Mass. We have communion with him even when we kneel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. We have communion with the love of Christ. This, um, she somehow picked this up, somehow knew it, so she went to a spiritual director and she said, Father, I know that, that God doesn't like the, that she was from France, all the sin going on in France. And I know that we all sin and we all fall short and we do things that that, uh, that offend the justice of God. That has been preached to me, I understand it. This is what I do not understand. When I pray, I don't feel that God is angry with me. When I pray, I feel like I am loved. What is this loving presence in my heart? All I want to do is I want to go into silence and just stop everything else in life and just pray and listen to that love. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's so true. Father, am I, am I delusional? Am I self-deceived? It was something like that kind of conversation she had with Father uh, Père uh, Vallée, a great Dominican preacher. And Père Vallée, he spoke a verse of the Scripture to her. He said, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is quoting St. Paul. He went on to explain to Blessed Elizabeth the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas, found in the first part of the Summa, question 43, about articles 5 through 9. He explained the theology of how the Son and the Holy Spirit are constantly being sent by the Father, into our hearts with every new movement of grace in our lives. That God is dynamically involved with us, constantly implicating himself in our personal plight because he loves us. And he does so for two reasons. The first reasons that, that he does so is, and this is the, uh, my favorite reason, he does it because he loves us so much. He just wants to, well, he wants you to enjoy him like a friend. St. Thomas says this, the scholastic theologian who is supposed to be dry. He says "The, the first reason why God the Father sends the Son and the Spirit in your heart is so that you can enjoy His presence. Do you know what the second reason is? Because the Father has a great mission for you, a great work that only you can do, and He wants you to be able to accomplish it and you can't accomplish it on your own. So he gives you his Son and the Holy Spirit in your heart so you can do the great work that he's entrusted you to do. It's pretty awesome. God the Father wants you not only to enjoy his presence, but he wants you to thrive. St. Irenaeus, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Let me repeat that. The glory of God is man fully alive. When are we fully alive? We are fully alive when we are accomplishing the great purpose God has entrusted to us. We're living life to the full when we're able to enjoy the presence of God, enjoy the presence of each other, and order the whole world to heaven. That's life to the full. That's what it means to be a human being. What is heaven? Heaven is the place where there's only room for love. Nothing can stop love in heaven. Love is not misunderstood in heaven. In heaven, there is no impatience. In heaven, there is no rudeness. In heaven, heaven perseveres in all things. Why? Because heaven is where love is known. And when we make love known, we bring heaven to earth. It's an awesome mystery, isn't it? St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. When we lift up our hearts, as we say in the liturgy, we lift up our hearts to keep our vision of God alive, to see love in the midst of darkness. When we count these things We remember who we are and our purpose. The fact that God is with us and God loves us and He's not abandoned us. And we find reason for our hope and we're able to go on. This is why St. Thomas says, God the Father loves us so much He constantly sends His Spirit and His Son into our hearts in ever new ways. Awesome mystery. Do you know what though? Elizabeth of the Trinity did not hear a word of the explanation I just gave you. (laughs) Well, somebody said she missed out. Well, actually, she got something very much better. Because when she heard the words, know ye not that thou art a temple of the Holy Spirit. She was caught up in an ecstasy her body was there. Father, Father Valet said, while I was giving the explanation, I could see her looking at me, but I, could, I also knew, even as she looked at me, she was not hearing a word I said. She was enveloped in the love of God. The wonder of his truth established her in a, in a whole new place. She was in adoration. John of the Cross says, says the... This is um, when angels or human beings speak to you like this. He said, it's as if they're stammering. They're going on explaining doctrine. It makes all the sense in the world. But to you, even though everything they explain, explain is true, to you it sounds like stammering because you hear something so much more beautiful. God sends you these messengers like this. And do you know what happens when he sends messengers like this and you say yes to the words that he speaks to you? your heart at a certain stage, St. John of the Cross says, so aches, so aches for Jesus. The pain in your heart, you want Jesus so badly, you tell Jesus, stop sending me the messengers. I want you. I want you. And and so this this is uh, the final image for sacred doctrine that I'd like to give you today from St. John of the Cross. As you go to stanza 12 in his poem, The Spiritual Canticle, he talks about entering into this garden in which at the base of the garden there is a fountain. There's a fountain and the the bride, the, she's staring into the fountain, waiting for the waters of the fountain to smooth over. And she, she actually tells the fountain, I wish you would smooth over like a mirror and that Uh, so that I could find the one on your surface for whom my heart longs. John of the cross says, that water in the very depths of your heart, the garden is your heart, in the very depths of your heart is this fountain of water. What is this water? It's the sacred doctrine of the church. And it becomes smooth as our understanding of that sacred doctrine is purified. What does it mean to have a purified understanding of our faith? I hope that's not me. (laughs) What does it mean? It means that, um, well, blessed are the pure of heart. What does it mean to be pure of heart? Well, the first thing it means is to understand our faith correctly. All right? That we we should know the truth about what we believe. And I told you, our true doctrine keeps the mystery alive. The splendor and the beauty of it opens our hearts to it all. Second thing those who are pure of heart have is that they lead holy lives. Purity of heart is about being chaste in our relationships with each other. Chastity, this noble virtue of friendship that allows us to disclose our hearts rightly to one another within the bonds of friendship that we know. So man and wife, they disclose themselves to each other in a way appropriate to man and wife. Fathers and, and, and mothers disclose their hearts in the way that's appropriate to their children. It's chastity. Children disclose their hearts in the way that's appropriate for their parents and to one another. People who aren't married disclose their hearts to each other in the way that's appropriate for their state in life. When we live this way, when we live out... Um, when we live out of this vulnerability that is truly measured to the glory of God, our hearts are pure. There's one more thing, you see, you need chastity, you need good boundaries in your life because of the third thing that it means to be pure of heart. The third thing it means to be pure of heart is to love, purity of love. But do you see, if you're not chaste and you don't know the truth, Do you see, in not knowing the truth, you're inclined to all kinds of deception. And not being chaste, you keep on breaking boundaries that hurt other people. The person who doesn't know the truth, the person who is not chaste, is not free to love. A lot of people think that chastity is about, you know, following rules and not letting yourself, you know, you, you, this extrinsic thing that's imposed on you. And you, you uh, it, uh, it's not fair. You know. Well, that's what St. Augustine thought. Chastity frees us. Purity frees us to love. To love in a way that makes the other person entrusted to us know in their deepest core that they're loved. The chaste person who knows the truth, knows, has the freedom to really love. And in that freedom, you also have the freedom, says Jesus, blessed are the pure of heart. Why? Because they see God. Not only do you have the freedom to love people the way they ought to be loved, you have the freedom to see God. So when we talk about the purity of of our faith, the way I refer to it, is learning to read the sacred doctrine of our faith as if it were a love letter spoken to you from the heart of God. And as you receive that gift and love, Saint John of the Cross describes the scene where the waters become smoothed over. And he says, as you peer into that, well, what would be the first thing you see? If you have a pure understanding of the faith, a pure understanding of the truth, you see the truth about who you are. One of the great great wonders of our doctrine is, the more purely you understand our teaching, the more you get to understand who you are. Christianity isn't about what you do, it's about who you are. You receive primarily an identity from the Father, the truth about who you are, more than some sort of extrinsic behavior that you need to conform to. The behavior comes out of who you are before the Father. And you see it. I'm a repentant sinner. I'm filled with all kinds of misery, but I'm loved. This is what we see in our sacred doctrine. I have lots to repent for, but as Saint Francis, as Pope Francis says, God doesn't get tired of forgiving us. We get tired of asking for forgiveness. His love for us is boundless. Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity even said it's excessive. It's excessive. The, uh, the other thing you see, though, as you look into those waters, and John the Cross describes this in the poem, as you look into those waters, you see another set of eyes looking at you with love, reflected on the doctrine of our truth, uh, the doctrine of our faith, rather, is the reason why we believe what we believe, the reason why we believe the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation and the seven sacraments, the reason why we believe all these things is because by believing these things, we discover the look of God's love. Jesus is gazing on us with love, but he's standing behind us in that garden, in the depths of our soul unless we withdraw into silence, unless we ponder the teachings of our faith as a love letter from him, we never get to capture, catch the glimpse of his love for us. And he, he yearns for us to know how much we love him. This is the cool part. It'd be a whole other day of reflection, but I'll just mention it. This, it the poem goes on, sees the eyes reflected in the water, and realizes that's her beloved, whom she's been searching for all through the night. She's gotten beat up for this guy. You know, <laughs> she's, she's chased him up mountains and into valleys and all confronted wild beasts and all kinds of things. And she's gotten all these messengers until she's tired of the messages. And there he is looking at her. So she turns around and with the intention of embracing him, But she turns around and she gets so excited she runs off. (laughs) And this time Jesus calls out to her. And he said, The breeze of your running consoled me. It refreshed me. The breeze of your running in love. You're you're losing yourself in love. You were so in love with me. You went by so fast. The breeze cooled me off. Thank you, my beloved. And and eventually, at the end of the poem, or a couple stanzas later, they actually do get together. It's a good poem. (laughs) And that's what happens for us, too. But what I wanted to give you then, today, so far, I've given you three different ways to approach God in prayer. The first way was to think about the life of Jesus and put yourself in his life. I called that composition of place. Second way I talked about, was I talked about um, going through the memories of your life, the painful ones especially, and looking for the presence of God, asking Jesus, where were you in this, in this very painful situation? How were you holding me together? I called that um, kind of healing of memories, I'm not sure what to call it, prayerful reflection of your memories, if you don't like healing, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. It's, the, it's what happens that counts. And the third thing is to learn to study the sacred doctrine of our faith as if it was from a messenger, a message that God wants to give us to wound our hearts, and let that love letter wound our heart and purify us until we see the reflection of Jesus' eyes there, Jesus who on, gazes on us in love. These aren't the only methods of prayer. You kind of do all three things, incidentally, when you pray something like the rosary. You can do all three of these things when you do Lectio Divina, because the Word of God takes you into your own memories, reveals the life of Christ, helps you start to think about the teaching of the church. Um, So no one method does it all. Uh, Every method, though, is subordinate to the encounter with Christ we have in prayer. And that encounter is priceless. It means everything. John the Cross, with this spiritual doctrine, formed whole generations of Carmelites for years and years to come. He wasn't yet a doctor of the church when St. of Lisieux began to read him. But she viewed herself as the spiritual daughter of his soul. She viewed herself as the spiritual daughter of St. John of the Cross, Tres of Lezure. Tres of Lezure uh, went into convent very uh, early. I wish I could tell you more, but we're so much out of time. <laughs> so let me, let me go to the end of her life. She, she dies very young, uh, I think 24 years old. And... Um, she had discovered you've heard about the Little Way of St. Therese, and the Little Way, basically, you could could say it's kind of like an application of John of the Cross to your daily life. John of the Cross said, study the life of Jesus. If you want to grow in prayer, if you want to become perfect, the most important thing you need to do is study the life of Jesus. And if you study the life of Jesus, you're going to notice one thing. Jesus never did anything that wasn't for the glory and honor of His Father. The will of the Father was Jesus' food. If Jesus only did things for the glory of God, then if we want to be like Him, if we want to imitate Him, because imitating Him, is that's the way we go forward, that's the way we find Him. The more like Him we are, the more we find Him. So if we want to be like Jesus, we need to imitate Him in his desire to do nothing but the Father's will. So what does this mean practically? This means in the situations that you're in, uh, as you approach your life decisions, if there are things that you are doing that are not purely for the glory and honor of God, don't do them. So let me give you an example. Watching reruns of Monk. There, there, is no, there is no intrinsic evil in watching reruns of your favorite Gelligan's Island show. Uh, uh, Ginger needs help with her dress, but other than that, it's <laughs> no intrinsic evil in doing those things, right? So, but we have a whole bunch of time wasters in our life, don't we? And the time we, most of the time we spend in entertainment is kind of a time waster. Uh, And although you're not exactly sinning, you're not exactly doing things for the glory of God either, usually. Right? Now, a lot of people hear this and they go, well, this is exactly why I don't like John of the Cross. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to go from glory to glory and none of this mortification, renunciation stuff. You know, I want to have my cake and eat it too. There must be another saint who's mastered that. Augustine or, you know, he, you know, and so anyway. So so they, nobody likes Carmelites, sorry Carmelites. Nobody likes your spirituality because it sounds so rough. But it's only because people look at this teaching and they don't look at it with the love that's behind it and in the context of St. John of the Cross's life. John of the Cross did, he lived a fun life. He loved to go on hikes. When he was novice master, he would bring the guys on camping trips up in the mountains. He, uh, he was often found, he would, he would walk by foot from one monastery 20-30 uh, uh, miles away to another monastery to hear confessions. And every once in a while they, uh, you know, where's Father John of the Cross? Let's try to find this guy. And there he is, uh, uh, laying down in a meadow, looking at a flower. <laughs> He did a lot of things that looked like time wasters. You know? He enjoyed life, but was he, was he when he was spending time in nature, when he was camping with the guys up in the mountains, was he doing it for the glory of God? Are there things like that we can do in our lives for the glory of God? Yes, so there are things that are time wasters, but not every form of recreation is is opposed to the glory of God. Not every form of recreation uh, 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 is somehow uh, not for the glory of God. God, rec- God invented recreation. Remember, he created the seventh day. God likes to rest. And, and he likes us to delight and rest too. But it needs to be ordered towards his glory. And so... St. John on the cross says, we say no to everything that is not purely for the glory of God. Why? To open up our hearts for all those activities that are for the glory of God. When you renounce something, you make space for God to lead you to somewhere else. It's a beautiful truth. Therese of Lezure, she, when in her day, the elevator was invented. And she rode the elevator. She was on a pilgrimage to Rome before she became a nun. She rode the elevator in Rome. And she said, you know what? We need to invent an elevator for the spiritual life. Because right now, all this renunciation, mortification, it's so hard, it's like climbing the stairs. (laughs) So God, could you help me find an elevator for the spiritual life? And over the years, Jesus disclosed to her The little way. The little way is kind of the elevator for the spiritual life. And if you look at, you compare the little way with John of the Cross, you actually see that she just took John of the Cross's basic teaching and kind of made it look like it wasn't so hard. Um, And So what is the little way? The little way of love in childhood. It means to approach every situation in your life with the simplicity of a child. To work at doing that. And a child trusts God. A child, what characterizes a child is they trust. St. Thomas Aquinas, he said that um, a suspicion of others is usually a sin except when you're old. Think about it. <laughs> think about it. So, yeah, so if you think your suspicions are just, you're probably old. <laughs> And so, and so, the the um, the way of divine childhood is a way of trust. You approach situations, and you you approach a situation. And you say, "What is God going to do in this situation?" And sometimes the trust costs a lot. Sometimes there's um, uh, situations that are annoying situations, but you're going to trust God anyway. I'm going to love, and by my love, I'm going to trust that God works it out, okay. So one of my favorite stories with Saint Therese is she loves uh, she, she's in her uh, uh, monastery she's in chapel and there's this sister who is clanking a rosary all over the place and nobody really likes to be around her because whenever you're around her very long she complains and so Saint Therese says well I'm going to choose uh, she wanted to tell the sister to kindly stop clanking her rosary. But she couldn't find a way to articulate that with love. So rather than saying something that could not be said in love, she refrained from saying anything at all, and instead kind of helped push her around the monastery when all the other sisters didn't want to be with her. This sister believed, after Teresa's death, this sister believed, Therese made her feel so loved, this sister believed that she was San Teresa's special confidant, that they were they were very close friends. And it was kind of a shock to her that she realized how much she tormented Therese when her writing came out. And, you know, came out in the process. She goes, I'm totally shocked because she only made me feel so loved. She never, she never made me feel any other way than loved. And there are hundreds of stories like that that uh, witnesses tell of San Therese because she followed the little way. One of the more painful moments of the little way, and this all has to do with mystical contemplation, I'll bring it back, is this decision never to do anything out of love, but only, only to act in the simplicity and trust of the love of God, only to act in love. Sometimes you're in situations where you cannot act in love. And St. said, when I entered into those situations where I could not act in love, I ran the other way. That was my last offense. I got out of there, because I'd rather run away than do something against love. And so she was falsely accused for breaking something in the monastery. And one of the sisters, some of the sisters were always watching to see if she did something wrong because they wanted to prove that she wasn't really a saint. And, and so one of the sisters saw, thought she understood or thought she saw that Therese had carelessly broken something. And she went to Mother Superior and said, Mother, uh, Mother prioress, Therese did this, broke this thing. And um, Mother Prioris calls Tres in and, and says, you know, you are accused of breaking this thing and uh, what do you have to say for yourself? And Tres said, I wanted to scream out and cry out in righteous indignation that I was innocent, that I was being falsely accused that this was a rash judgment. I wanted to do that, but I could not find the words to say that with love. And so... I guess just kept my mouth shut until I was dismissed, and then I ran. I ran back to my cell, and I wept to Jesus. Well, this, this is something we can do, this little way. We can choose only to live by love. It's another way of saying to choose only to act purely for the glory and honor for God, of God like Jesus did. It's a way of imitating Jesus. It's a way of imitating Jesus, the discipline of only saying and doing things out of love. The reason why I bring this to your attention, you might say, well, this talks about talking and doing. What does it have to do with contemplative prayer? Whenever we engage the asceticism or the discipline of the Christian life, so asceticism means discipline, whenever we follow the disciplined path of God's love, We're not really achieving very much because our love is so insipid. But what we are doing is we're opening up our lives and we're opening up the world to the love of God through us. We're giving God a chance to work. We're giving God a chance to act. We're uh, nearly out of time, and so I won't be able to go um, um, as deeply into this mystery as I'd like. Um, something that lives in Carmelite spirituality and Carmelite prayer, a place that Carmelite prayer lives out of. And I think um, those of you who are drawn to Carmel, I hope you go deep into this mystery. It comes from uh, Angela de Felino that I gave you in the very first. Angela de Felino was one of the main influences on Teresa of Avila, and her devotion to the humanity of Jesus. She is also an influence on Elizabeth of the Trinity. And you will find expressions in Teresa of Avila, but also Elizabeth of the Trinity, about resting in the suffering of Christ. Resting in the suffering of Christ. There is a conception of contemplation or prayer in which you escape this world of woes, you kind of escape your humanity or surmount it. I talked about that earlier today. Elizabeth of the Trinity, she speaks about resting in the suffering of Jesus, resting in the humanity of Jesus that suffered for us. So if Jesus suffered for me and in suffering for me, this is how he glorified the Father and won my salvation if I rest in His suffering, if I not only get through my suffering, but I learn to rest in the pain in my heart, rest with that and offer that to Jesus and delight in doing so, just like He delighted in doing so for me. So Jesus didn't delight in the pain itself. Jesus delighted that He could suffer this for you. Elizabeth is saying, this is what it means to rest in His suffering suffering. Christian contemplation doesn't take us out of that place. Christian contemplation, Carmelite contemplation, gives us the grace to rest in the suffering of Christ so that our suffering is joined to the suffering of Christ. This um, this finds its way into a, uh, the story of St. Therese of Lisieux. I already referred to what she was suffering at her death. Maybe a future time I can come back and talk to you, give you more talks on Therese of Lisieux. This is something that we see um, uh, worked out in the life of John of the Cross, because even after um, uh, those of you who are in the ancient observance of Carmel, or the Oak Arms, You weren't the only ones who persecuted uh, St. John of the Cross. Uh, St. John of the Cross was also persecuted by the Discalced. In fact, his death was hastened because his own brothers, whom he had poured his life out to serve, they misunderstood him and misjudged him. And when he was very sick, they didn't get him the medical attention he needed. Only at the very end did they realize their mistake, you know, uh, just like in the oak who imprisoned Saint John at the very end they realized they realized they were in the presence of a great saint. Saints are so easy to misunderstand. When you look at it, Saint. John of the Cross, you would think that Saint John of the Cross would be bitter against the ancient observance, or that he would die bitter of all the ways he was betrayed by the discalced Carmelites whom he had served. You would think that would be the response. But that wasn't the response of St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross, his response was to thank God that he was considered worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. He rested in those sufferings. There is one other great saint, Um, He's a blessed now that I said I was going to talk about, and so I'd like to conclude this retreat with thoughts of him. And that is Blessed John Paul II. Blessed John Paul II used to, during the Nazi occupation, uh, he had to go to a rock quarry to work. He was a clandestine seminarian, so he's studying in secret. And while um, he was in the rock quarry, all the other workers would kind of hide him so that he could do his studies and they would do extra work so that it would look like he was productive, as productive as everybody else so that he could study for the priesthood. So his priesthood was the result of the sacrifice of workers in that rock, rock quarry. That's why he loved workers so much. He he felt the solidarity with them. And and on his way to the rock quarry, from, he lived in Krakow. That's where this, the... Uh, um, bishop's palace was. He had to sneak there and then sneak out to the rock quarry. On his way back and forth he would pass by a monastery. monastery had a uh, great saint who had died there, a saint to whom Jesus appeared. Her name was Faustina Kowalska. And um, he would pass by her convent every day to the rock quarry. Now, Sister Faustina, she was told that Poland was about to be immersed in a terrible suffering. And in fact, she died just before the Nazi invasion. John, John Paul II walking by her place uh, and the message of mercy that she had for the whole world. What is mercy? Mercy is love that suffers the misery of another to affirm their dignity. And the message that Sister Faustina received from the Lord was, I want my mercy known to the whole world. Because the misery of the world is great, but my mercy is greater. Gino, you know, her message was condemned in 1958. It was condemned for 20 years because of a bad translation. But the cardinal of Krakow, who helped rescue the message, he had been formed by Carmelite spirituality. And so he reread her message. And offered a new translation, reaching from his knowledge of John the Cross, Therese of Lisieux, Elizabeth of the Trinity, Therese of Avila. And as he reread, he realized we're dealing with a great mystic, and her message is relevant for the church. So he wrote a letter to Paul VI. Would you please, would you please, um, change with uh, the band on this? This is pretty good, and here's the reasons. Paul VI read the reasons, and he lifted the ban. And the devotion to divine mercy that Sister Faustina proposed became uh, something that we could have access to. It wasn't considered error anymore. And within three months of that act by Paul VI, Paul VI would die, and he, a new pope would be elected. The new pope was John Paul I, and John Paul I died, and a new pope was elected... Again, and it was the Pope, the Cardinal from Krakow, Karol Wojtyła, John Paul II. And John Paul II, formed by Carmelite spirituality and the message of mercy, he used his pontificate the whole time to go into the miserable places of the earth, the place all over the world, over a hundred apostolic visits to the most needy, to the places where the faith was most rejected, and we'd go there with the love of Christ. Because mercy is love that suffers the misery of another to affirm their dignity. And he spoke about the love of Jesus to protect the dignity of people. Last week, Cardinal Jeevish was in our, our archdiocese. He was here to raise money for a John Paul II center in Krakow. And Cardinal Jeevish said at the end of uh, his homily uh, at our parish, Shrine of St. Anne, he said, If you have a problem, ask John Paul II, and he will help you. He is a great intercessor. And so I give this to you at the end of our day. Our contemplation doesn't take us out of suffering, but it inserts us into it. Our contemplation isn't about something morbid or self-destructive. It's about learning how to suffer things in love. And by ourselves alienated, it's impossible to do the kind of contemplation that I've just described. But we are not alone. We are not alone. There is a communion of saints. John and Teresa and Elizabeth Therese, Faustina, John Paul II, Angela, and the list could go on well into the night. We are not alone. They all want to help you. They all want to help you. We are not alone because by his sacred humanity, Jesus has implicated us in each one of our lives. And by his grace and the help of our friends, The victory that he won on the cross will be ours. I had some friends here from Vietnam, but they're not here now. So let me, uh, this was a story I wanted to tell for them, but it will be the last story. Colonel Van Tuan spent 13 years in solitary, uh, in prison, nine years in solitary confinement. And um, he would write notes to the faithful that he snuck out of prisons through different little boys and stuff. We'd come in and see him and he'd write these notes and they'd go out to the faithful to encourage them. And he said this, he said, "Um, the, uh, you are, if you want peace, you must fight. If you want peace, you must, you must fight. In this fight, in this battle, in this war, Jesus and the saints and the rosary and the Eucharist and reading the scriptures, these are your allies, these are your weapons. If you do not drop your weapons and you do not betray your allies, your victory is assured. The prayer that Jesus has given you, this is is our our weapon and the resistance of God in the world, as the Saba Oath comes down to transform everything. As the victory of God is being realized, even if we can't see it, that victory is unfolding before us. Do not drop your weapons. Do not betray your friends. Your victory is assured.